All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'd like to remind you each and every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks, and my company, uh, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? I should like to remind you that uh, Chen has had a spectacular track record in the past, and he, we was able to parlay $5,400 uh, in a retirement account to $2.3 million, and he did that without any leverage. Uh, Chen continues to find some very exciting things to talk about. I will be interviewing Chen from time to time uh, to cover a couple of his hottest ideas, uh, Those, uh, and I'll be posting those interviews at jtaylormedia.com, the first one uh, scheduled for uh, this weekend. Now, there are two companies uh, in the biotechnology space that Chen is especially excited about now that have very advanced stage breakthrough drugs, which, if approved by the FDA, can result in enormous gains, I believe, for the shareholders. One of those companies is named Sarepta Therapeutics, which has a drug that is enormously promising for curing a form of muscular dystrophy. In fact, uh, it was highlighted in Barron's this past weekend. The other company is Sorrento Therapeutics. That's a company that appears to have a breakthrough cancer-curing technology. And Chen will explain why he is so excited about those two companies. And uh, I do hope to keep you up to date on this show uh, and in my newsletter on a couple of Chen's hottest uh, ideas uh, at, uh, on an ongoing basis. Um, the, but the best way for sure to keep up with what Chen is doing is to subscribe to his newsletter. And uh, Chen will be accepting new subscribers uh, during the first two weeks of 2016. But you do need to put your name on a waiting list to be eligible to subscribe to his letter uh, at the start of uh, the new year. Uh, go to miningstocks.com. It's where you need to go to put your name on the waiting list, miningstocks.com. Uh, you can also subscribe to my newsletter uh, there as well. I want to thank each of you for listening to the show and I uh, want to encourage you to keep sending along your questions and comments and criticisms and praises uh, to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. That's questions the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. I also want to thank our sponsors. Um, today, our sponsor for today's show uh, is Dynacor Gold Mines. I want to thank Dynacor for making the show economically viable. Our, our show today is titled Prospering and Creating a World Worth Inheriting. Chris Martinson and his partner Adam Taggart of Peak Prosperity and then Al Corlin uh, are my guests today as well as uh, Michael Oliver who will be with me in just a moment. 
The world is becoming an ever more dangerous place, it seems, uh, due to massive and growing financial, energy, and environmental imbalances. Not only are financial markets in peril, but critical systems and global resources we depend on for life's conveniences are starting to fail. There will be a few places to take shelter uh, from the coming storm. Most people assume that current conference will la- uh, current comforts that we enjoy so much will last indefinitely. Then, when tragedy occurs, seemingly out of the blue, ill-prepared citizens will panic with disastrous results. Well, starting at about 3:25 today, uh, from their new book *Prosper*, uh, Chris Martinson and Mr. Taggart will explain why our current comforts are, in fact, unsustainable. And given current realities, what we can do to prepare for those difficulties ahead in order to sustain a more secure, healthy, happy, and spiritually fulfilling life. And uh, my friend Al Corlin will be joining me after our first commercial break to talk about uh, his radio show, The Corlin Economics Report, uh, as well as a a growing affiliation between Al's show and mine. Uh, So we look forward to see, uh, to talk to Al in just a few minutes. But right now we have Michael Oliver with me. Michael, um, always good to have him with us because he uh, has a very unique way of looking at markets. I think one that I have gained confidence in uh, over the last couple of years. So thank you for joining me again, Michael. It's good to good to have you with me. Always good to be back. Thank you, Jay. Now, Michael, I wanted to read. Uh, this is a, a quote from the Daily Gold. It's a website called the Daily Gold, uh, and. Uh, here, here's what he has to say. He says, The bear market in gold miners has been one for the record books, but it is not over yet. Last week we noted that precious metals were on the cusp of making new lows, while the U.S. dollar index was very close to another key breakout. This scenario remains well in play and would certainly affect the gold mining sector, which over the past two weeks failed to rebound or build any strength. End of quote. Michael, what is your uh, what is your momentum work telling you right now about gold and then uh, as well as the gold shares? Well, I in preparation for this, I actually spent uh, several hours looking at the current momentum charts, long-term momentum in particular, annual and quarterly, of both gold mining ETF, the GDX, which is unleveraged, and just gold itself. And, of course, I keep my subscribers up to date on this. But uh, sure. uh, basically, when you get to near a year-end, and this is true with many markets I've found over the years, it's, it's quite often transitional for markets, especially old bears or old bulls. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the stock market obviously has been an old bull for five or six years of upside. And, this, and, and right now we're trading on the S&P where we were uh, 12 months ago, mm. precisely. Okay. Now, um, and if you look at gold, it's been egregiously going down since the summer lows of 2013, which was a crash low. We dropped from the 1700s down to 1179 in June of 2013. A three-month period between April and June was a crash. Well, that's the way a market sort of gets rid of, of what it had to do. In other words, if gold needed to go down, which it did, momentum suggested it in 2012, in 2013 it finally gave it up and did it. Well, since then, it's been a trickle, and people just don't notice the fact that it's been a trickle. We're $100 below the low of two years ago, two and a half years ago. Mm-hmm. $100 on a, on a $13, $12, $1,100 market is not that great of a percent gain if you're short. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, two good days, you can offset that. Uh, momentum suggests that it is a bottom, 
despite the repeated marginal new lows that we've seen subsequent to the 2013 lows. And every time we make one of these new lows, what do we do? We rally, we do not take out the low by a couple percent, turn around and rally $100. So if you short the new low, you get your head taken off. Uh-huh. Well, we just made a new low again here in the last week below the low of August by all of about $10. Right now we're back above the August lows. And uh, the situation looks like this. If you find gold, uh, and there's 25 trading days, I think, left in this year. If you find that next year that gold is trading in the 1150 to 1170 zone, you've probably seen the low and you're on your way up. And that, that's not very far away. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you see the GDX, which right now is trading at $13.80, which is about a dollar off of its bear market low. If you see it trading here, in fact, above about 1335 in January, pat yourself on the back. You've probably seen the low, but especially if you ever see it up to over 16 next year, you've definitely seen the low. These numbers are pathetically close to the current market, and if you look at a price chart on GDX, for example, or look at the price chart of gold, and take the numbers I just gave you, 1150 to 1170 on gold, or the $16-plus level on the GDX, you'll see that doesn't mean a lot on a price chart. It's not taking out any major highs. Uh, it's just sort of back up toward the high we recently made. But for momentum, it is a major positive. And it suggests that you're coming out of here and that this uh, process has just taken a while. And it's simple as that. Sometimes bottoms take an egregiously long time and uh, equally with tops. And I think that's what we've undergone. What are, you, uh, what, what are your dollar charts looking like? Because uh, obviously there's a relationship there between gold and the dollar. Uh, you you think we're near a high in the dollar? Because I, do, I accept that to some extent that, yes, the dollar's recent uh, strength over the last two years has definitely hurt gold. It's been coincident with the downside in gold. Uh, and when you measure gold versus the euro against the yen, you come up with a totally different picture, for example, as far as gold. Uh, the dollar, I think, is topping. I think it hit the objective that I'd expected to see. In 2012, we projected $100 on the dollar index. It reached there, $100.35, I think, back in March. We touched 100 again this month after congesting all during the in-between time. Uh, if it makes a new high above that 100.35, the March high, it's not significant. It's not confirmed by momentum. Uh, and meanwhile, I'm open to the possibility the dollar could slip off from here. And for the dollar index, folks, which is really an inverse of the euro, because it's 57% weighted by the euro, if you see the dollar index cash, which is right now 99.50 something, trading at 96.50, three points below here, basically in the middle of the last eight months, nine months of range, uh, it is topped if you see that number next year. So a lot of markets are straddling areas that if they – fool around over the next 25 days, basically picking your pocket both ways. Uh, They're in position with very little movement next year to actually turn more decisively. In the case of the dollar down, in the case of gold up, uh, in the case of the S&P, the next leg down. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's what I see going on here is basically this mumbling, fumbling around at the end of the year. And by the way, if you go back and look at a late 2007 stock chart, S&P, you got the exact same kind of action. Big down in the summer, big up into October, big down in November, back up in December, all meaningless zigzags, mm-hmm. just like we've had in the S&P since August low. Mm-hmm. 
sharp up, sharp down, sharp up. And, and it goes sideways, though, but you draw a line sideways, you see you're not going anywhere. You're just right. twisting and turning. Well, I think basically that's what's going on in many markets right now, and I think that indicates transition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the big uh, plate tectonic shifts that you have talked about, the uh, turning turning bearish on on uh, on bonds and and the dollar, uh, 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 let's say on equities and and uh, the bond market, and then turning bullish on commodities. Uh, just with one minute left, uh, how does oil look to you now, Mike? Well, it's actually very interesting. I didn't. I thought we could make a new low in this recent drop. We didn't. Stopped about two dollar, a dollar, actually a dollar and a half short of taking out the low of a few months ago. Uh, some of its near-term indications, uh, we're at 43 right now. You get up over 45, they could ram it. Uh, they might ram it upside. Uh, and if I'm trading over 49 much in the first quarter of next year, now that's not a significant number because, after all, a couple quarters ago we were in the low 60s. Right. Okay? So if I get up over 49, the 49.50 zone in the first quarter of next year, again, 25 trading days from now, uh, you, could, you could unleash it a bit. Now, I, now, when I say unleash it a bit, uh, you're not going back in the high 90s or 80s. Right now. I think uh, the best you could expect to see any time next year under the most optimal circumstances would be the very low 70s. Mm-hmm. And I well, that would certainly that would certainly uh, breathe life back into a very you know very hurting sector. That's for sure. We yeah, are it would. It would. Uh, we are out of time, Michael. Unfortunately, it's that's all the time we have for now. But we'll look to talk to you again next week, hopefully. Okay. Uh, Thank you, Jay. So. Thank you very much, Michael, for being with us. Well, folks, we do have to take our break. But when we come back, Al Corlin will be with me, and then uh, followed later then in the show by Chris Martinson and Adam Taggart of Peak Prosperity. So don't go away. We'll be right back with my good friend, Al Corlin. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Investors deserve to start seeing greater returns, period. Creating shareholder value requires vision and a disciplined, fiscally responsible style. At Dynacor Goldmines, we are proving how to fuel growth without shareholder dilution. Cash flow and liquidity levels are as robust as the company has seen throughout its history. Dynacor is a low-risk public company generating actual profits coupled with real shareholder value. Learn more at DynacorGold.com or follow us on Twitter at DynacorGold. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me my good friend, Al Corlin. Uh, many of you probably know Al Corlin from the KE Report, the Corlin Economics Report. If you don't know him from that, you should, and go there. It's the kereport.com. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful site with uh, lots of actually daily uh, daily uh, interviews that are put up there and, and discussions. Uh, what I like about Al's site as much as anything is that you can go on there and comment on what you just heard, and there's a very active 
uh, commentary from listeners that uh, are you know are, are exchanging ideas. And uh, Al himself is frequently on there uh, talking uh, and and interacting with people. So it's the inter- the interaction of the KE report, uh, along with some excellent guests. He has a daily a daily uh, a daily show that he has there every day. He also has a weekend show where many different guests are there. Uh, so I strongly suggest that you go to the kereport.com. I'm not going to read Al's bio because we have so little time, uh, but his bio is posted at the Voice America uh, business channel on my page on the website there. So go there to learn more about Al. But Al and I have been good friends for many years, uh, having to do with our our involvement in the mining industry, and so it's really good to have Al with me. Al and I are starting to exchange uh, content with our with our uh, websites. Uh, I'm going to be sending things Al's way, and Al will be sending things over to Jay Taylor Media as well. Welcome, Al. It's really good to have you with me again. Hey, Jay. It's a real pleasure. Listen, I want to I want to take up the offer that uh, the lady made prior to uh, prior to us our conversation, and that is, if you have any questions, go to Jay Taylor at Media, whatever the whatever the uh, address was. But I have a question for you, Jay. And yeah. I'm going to ask you the question, and I'm going to put down my headset, so I'm going to go play golf. What's the <laughs> meaning? Of, what is the meaning of the world, Jay? What is the meaning of the world? No, Al, I didn't listen. <laughs> now you have to remember, Al, that uh, that you are the guest here, right? And okay, you're the one you that got, you got you're, a deal, Jay. <laughs> you're you're the one that's on the hot seat now. You got it. No, but it's it's not meant to be a hot seat. Uh, tell our listeners what are you trying to accomplish with the KE report? What is your goal? Well, Jay, what we're trying to accomplish on the KE report, and I think we're being pretty successful at it, is we're trying to further the philosophy that you never, you never want to listen to just one person. Mm-hmm. You want to get as many opinions on any given subject, particularly finance, which is what we have a tendency to to focus on, as I know you do. You want to get as many opinions as you possibly can, and at that point, make up your own mind. Don't Don't just listen to one person. That is kind of a lose-type situation. Well, you certainly do have a lot of people uh, on your site. Uh, you you have uh, some technical analysts too. I think three mm-hmm. or four of them. We just comment briefly on on who they are, and and generally speaking, Al, since our focus is so much on gold and silver and and commodities, what what is the general uh, feeling of your technical analyst at this time? Well, right now, the 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 consensus among Gary Savage and Dr. Richard Postma, and certainly Avi Gilbert uh, of uh, the ElliottWaveTrader.com and uh, Rick Ackerman is that we're kind of in a wait and see mode in terms of gold. I think if I were to summarize what uh, everybody feels is that 2016 could be a great year for gold, but probably not much will happen without the event of a major, major black swan, which could certainly happen, you know, within the next hour anyway, the way things are going, probably not much will happen until 2016. At that point, cycle theory indicates that we may have a bit of a breakout. All right. Well, just tell the people at the KE Report, there's a weekend, the weekend shows, Al's Insights, Corey's Insights, your your partner. Tell us a little bit about your partner, Al, there, um, Corey Fleck. Well, Corey Fleck is a gentleman who I met, a young man, I guess I should say, who I met probably about five years ago. I met Corey through his uh, stepfather, Yale Simpson, who's been a colleague of mine for probably 25 or 30 years. And having said that, Corey has a very interesting background. He grew up in the resource industry. He went on to university, uh, graduated from, if I'm not mistaken, St. Andrews University in North Carolina, and 
became a chartered accountant in Canada, a um, for lack of better term, CPA in the United States. He's one of the best analysts who I have ever met for somebody his age, uh, and he is slowly in the process of inheriting our program. And they'll tell you he's going to do a great job. Very personal great. young man and a very bright young man. Well, he does a great job already, Al. And, you know, uh, one of the things I think makes your sh- your weekend shows in particular so interesting are uh, the number of people that you have. And sometimes you have various people on at the same time uh, sharing ideas. And I think that interaction is really what makes your site so uh, so potent. You know, I, I wanted to just chat with you about uh, a couple of other ideas um, all the you know the world as we talk about on our show seems to be careening out of control, not only in the financial markets but we talk often about about that. But in terms of a growing geopolitical hostility and a growing number mm-hmm. of wars and terrorist activities, I mean it's in the news all the time these days. Now today, Pope uh, Francis told churchgoers that uh, Christmas this year is going to be a quote charade because the whole world is at war. In other words. His idea is, why are we celebrating Christmas, which is the birth of Jesus, also known as the Prince of Peace? And I'd like to just quote Pope Francis here. He says, we are, uh, we are close to Christmas. There will be lights, there will be parties, bright trees, even nativity scenes all decked out while the world continues to wage war. It's all a charade. The world has not understood the way, the way of peace. The whole world is at war. Pope Francis, he says, uh, war can be justified, so to speak, with many, many reasons. But when all the world is uh, as it is today at war, piecemeal though that war may be, a little here, a little there, there is no justification. What shall remain in the wake of this war, in the midst of which we are living now, Pope Francis asked, and what shall remain? Ruins, thousands of children without education, so many innocent victims, and lots of money in the pockets of arms dealers, ends of quote. That's uh, to quote Pope Francis earlier today. Now, Al, you know, we are reminded in the book of Ecclesiastes that there is nothing new under the sun. But to me, uh, I've lived 68 years and you about the same length of time. There does seem to be a trend away from civility and forgiveness towards one, uh, you know, a mood away from forgiveness and understanding and trying to get along uh, towards a movement towards, I'd say, disorder, chaos, and war. You know, yesterday you and I, uh, we were talking informally and, and you read a few lines from a book titled uh, rediscovering Catholicism mm-hmm. uh, that attempted to explain why this is happening. Would you care to share maybe a, a little bit of what that book's about? We have two minutes, Al. Well, the book has, thanks, Jay. Well, the book has really, it doesn't really focus necessarily on Catholicism. It focuses on just being a good person and it focuses on Christianity. Uh, the author brings out something that I think is very interesting when he says that, you know, what people are looking for today, they are completely inundated with events like the tragedy that occurred in Tunisia today, like the Russian plane that was shot down just recently yesterday, etc., etc., the tragedy in Paris, they are absolutely inundated with bad news. And what the author stresses here is we have to, rather than argue with people, we have to show by example how we really feel about all of, the, all of this. You know, I, I put an addendum I want to say onto what you just read, Jay. I said, I, I posted it on the site, and I said, I would have to add that if the Pope 
Pope's comment and the opinion of the free world begin to galvanize, resulting in action, this would actually be a blessing in disguise. And I I firmly believe that. I know you and I talked about that off air, if I'm not mistaken. What I found interesting, Jay, I got, I got a number of comments on this, and one of our listeners actually said, you know, Rush Limbaugh is right. The Pope is a Marxist. Um, I find that to be an absolutely uh, ridiculously ignorant statement, for lack of better terms. Yeah, but, well, go ahead, Al. No, that's right. Go ahead. So, so we're just, just about out of time here. I would say that uh, certainly, uh, you know, the, the point is that maybe he's a Marxist from the inside out. In other words, we are supposed to love and care for those around us. Mm-hmm. It's not something that's supposed to be forced on us. And I think if we, agree, could do, if we could live our lives that way, taking care of our families and those around us, we would need a lot less government. We're out of time, unfortunately, folks. Uh, uh, so we do have to go to commercial break. But when we come back, uh, Chris Martinson and Adam Taggart will be with us. So don't go away. We'll be right back. And Al, thanks so much for being with us. We'll do it again sometime soon. Thank you, Jerry. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Investors deserve to start seeing greater returns, period. Creating shareholder value requires vision and a disciplined, fiscally responsible style. At Dynacor Gold Mines, we are proving how to fuel growth without shareholder dilution. Cash flow and liquidity levels are as robust as the company has seen throughout its history. Dynacor is a low-risk public company generating actual profits coupled with real shareholder value. Learn more at DynacorGold.com or follow us on Twitter at DynacorGold. listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790 that's 1-866-472-5790 you can also send an email to questions taylor at gmail.com that's questions the number four taylor at gmail.com now back to our program Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me uh, once again Christopher Martinson. He's been with me before, but we're adding today uh, his colleague and and co-founder at Peak Prosperity, Adam Taggart. Uh, Chris Martinson, as I say, has been with us before. Very admirable background, uh, trained in uh, in the biosciences initially, and um, and then came across the ideas that he's going to talk to us about today. And and uh, we've talked about in the past the idea that things aren't aren't infinite. Supplies of, of commodities and supplies of, uh, of the things that we enjoy in this world cannot be wasted forever without dire consequences. And um, and so we're starting to, to see a lot of that happening now. And so uh, Peak Prosperity addresses how we should adjust our lives uh, accordingly and so that we can live uh, happier, more fulfilled lives going forward in a world that's going to be increasingly challenged. And uh, Adam... Uh, again, this is the first time I've, I've gotten a chance to talk to Adam. Uh, he is a, a co-founder of Peak Prosperity and the president. He wears many hats, but his basic job is to handle the business side of things there with Chris Martinson more, I guess, free to sort of think and write. And uh, I'm sure that uh, Adam does his level of thinking, too. Indeed, he has quite a, a distinguished background, too, having uh, gone to Stanford, has an MBA from Stanford, uh, and prior to partnering with uh, Chris, 
Adam was general manager of chrismartinson.com. He was a vice president at Yahoo, uh, where he worked for nine years. Before that, he did the startup thing, mysimon.com, sold to CNET in 2001. But after graduating from Brown University in the early 1990s, Adam worked investment banking analyst at Merrill Lynch, where he received a firsthand look at all that was broken on Wall Street. And um, it really, it's, a, it's that kind of a background, I think, is, is very valuable these days because uh, I think most of us would probably think that things have not been all straightened out yet on Wall Street. Well, thank you both, both of you, Christopher and Adam, for joining me today. Jay, it's a real pleasure to be with you. Really good to have you. And uh, Adam, I'd like to start out with you. You know, just in reading your bio here, you discovered things that were broken on on Wall Street in the 1990s for sure. And then, of course, we saw some. We saw the breakdown of Wall Street to a great extent. Have things improved? Have we fixed anything since the 1990s? <laughs> No, we haven't. And uh, as you mentioned there in my bio, I, I felt at the time that I had a front row seat to the dysfunction going on there and how the playing field was uh, sloped completely in the bank's favor and not in the clientele's favor. And um, it's, it's sad to say this, but um, the, the numbers and the transgressions that I was able to see while I was there now in retrospect look quaint in terms of their size. Um, you know, what we learned, uh, you know, when 2008 happened and uh, we had learned about, uh, you know, a lot of the, the, the really bad behavior that had gotten us into the trouble that we did, um, it dwarfed the things that I had looked at. And uh, as you'll hear Chris and I, I'm sure, talk about in this podcast, that uh, none of the root causes that, that led to the 2008 crisis have been effectively addressed. And in fact, they've only uh, gotten larger and the risks have only become um, more extreme. So. Sadly, Jay, I wish I could say that they'd been uh, addressed and, and things were better since my days there. But, but again, my my days on Wall Street, which I thought um, you know was was pretty high high corruption at the time, now now look more like kind of uh, uh, you know Mayberry. <laughs> well, that's 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 too bad. But the world is as it is, and we and part of what you and Chris are bringing to us is the reality of the world as it is to help us understand uh, what the dangers are. And I should mention before we go any further uh, that we want to talk uh, to Chris. Uh, and Adam about the book they've both uh, put together, they've co-authored, called Prosper, How to Prepare for the Future and Create a World Worth Inheriting. Uh, Chris, uh, you know, many of my colleagues, uh, people that I have on this show and many of my friends, are uh, they're sort of free market Austrian economic thinkers, and they claim that much of the imbalances, because that's what we want to talk about, a lot of imbalances in your book, financial imbalances, economic imbalances, and imbalances in, in the environment, that, that a lot of those problems wouldn't be so severe if we had some sort of an honest monetary system, a system that did not allow money to be created out of nothing, infinite amounts of money that then provide the uh, the ability to demand goods and services to live beyond our means. Uh, do you think there's any merit in that argument? Not only do I think there's merit, it, it's, it's a critical understanding if you want to know where we're going and, and how we got here. Now, uh, you know, I am very much uh, in alignment with Austrian economics when it comes to monetary policy and, and all of that. And so, you know, one of the big things that Adam and I have done, we've, we've looked back through history and we've noted that there have been plenty of times where money or money equivalents or credit or whatever we're calling money, whether it's physical currency, paper, derivatives, stocks, bonds, doesn't matter, that there are times when those paper claims get out of balance with real stuff. And, you know, real stuff is the actual honest production of a nation, it's the it's the goods, it's the raw materials, it's it's primary wealth, secondary wealth, all the all the things you can touch and feel 
And, you know, history says sometimes people favor those things and sometimes people favor paper and the pendulum swings back and forth. But we've never seen a period that's this extreme with over $200 trillion of just debt, uh, equity markets that are about half that, but unfunded liabilities that are many multiples of both those numbers put together. It's just an insane place where what we see when we look into the future, Jay, is that uh, the world is collectively expecting that somehow, magically, the real things that, that we like to claim with our money and money equivalents are going to be there in sufficient supply to justify today's prices. Mm-hmm. And those are prices for the dollar itself, or the yen or the euro, the price of stocks, the price of bonds. All of them, in our view, are badly overpriced because they're expecting, requiring, demanding a, a form of exponential growth in the real economy that's not only been missing in action the last 10 years, but we can't find any solid, justifiable, rational basis to say, and here's how it's going to accelerate in the future. No new internet, no new transformative, disruptive technology, resources becoming ever scarcer and tighter. Against that backdrop, we see, at best, uh, a horizon of low growth in front of us. At worst, we see the dreaded negative growth, at which point none of the current valuations of, of, of all the money equivalents that are out there can be justified. So it looks like we're headed for some uh, deflation, some implosion of prices, I guess. Uh, that is in, indeed what you believe will, will come first, right? We do. Uh, that's a guess. You know, we, we think that you know, one way or the other, we only have to answer this one question, who's going to eat the losses? Of course, the bankers and the central banks would like to have everybody have the losses shared equally by the process of inflation, nice gentle inflation, nibble at everybody's savings until all these imbalances are sort of quietly stolen away. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we do favor the idea that the most likely path at this point is a punishing deflation, uh, one that's going to really scare the central banks, and then we do also expect them to overreact to that, as they've done uh, at every crisis since the 90s, and put a lot more money out there, maybe this time to Main Street, and then we'll get into the punishing inflation stage. But, you know, if you wake up in 20 years and look back, uh, what we're going to all realize is that a whole lot of fantasy wealth got destroyed. Yeah. Well, your book, uh, to a great extent, it, it, it addresses imbalances in three general areas, as I think I mentioned a moment ago, energy, uh, the economics uh, in the economy, and in the environment. Uh, and, you know, the thing that strikes me is it, it sounds kind of Malthusian. I mean, I, I, back in the, I mean, I'm old enough to remember, I think it was uh, Paul Ehrlich and the uh, Population Bomb, or the, the book that was very, uh, very popular, um, and we do see, you know, exponential growth in population. So the question is, that if you've got this exponential growth in population, there's going to always be demands, especially in a world where you have people voting. There's always going to be demands for, for stuff to make their lives more enjoyable or at least more tolerable. So I guess, you know, I'm, I'm wondering how that can be stopped. I mean, maybe those are some of the ideas that we want to, if we get to them. But let's talk a little bit, if, if you would, um, and, and, you know, Adam, feel free to jump in any time here, but uh, uh, maybe starting out with you, Chris, on, on the energy imbalances, just talk to us briefly about, about your concerns there. Um, it, it has to do with the difficulty of winning oil and gas from the, uh, from the ground, right? It's becoming increasingly difficult. Well, sure, I'd be happy to. And, and to, be, to clear something up, um, uh, you know, our book, The Crash Course, uh, really goes through those three E's, economy, energy, and the environment. That's real problem definition. It really describes uh, a lot of what you're talking about. Our second book is around the other side of the story, which is, okay, what do you do about that okay. solution side? Uh, that book's called Prosper. 
Um, in the crash course, and uh, you know, we we laid out a number of ideas, and a really important one is around energy. And of course, you know, if you open the newspaper, Wall Street Journal, uh, go to a conference, people will say, "Oh my gosh, the United States is about to be the next Saudi Arabia." There's plenty of oil out there. There's mm-hmm. plenty of gas. A little bit of truth to that, but there's a trend you have to watch carefully, which is look at the lengths we're going to to get that new oil out of the ground with the mm-hmm. fracking. Uh, with these fracking wells that, that deplete 85% in three years, so we're on this heinous treadmill of constantly drilling these giant 10, 20,000 foot wells uh, to get a little bit of oil out. Look at what's happening with the tar sands up in Canada. It's just a moonscape of environmental disaster to you know, basically pressure wash a little bit of greasy oil off of some sand. These are all signs that tell you, Jay, that, that we're at that part of the story. The easy part of the oil story is over. So really, we're, we're talking in, in our book and our work and in our video series as well is around this idea. The mm-hmm. age of cheap energy, particularly cheap petroleum, is over. Now, the mm-hmm. price can go down for a while, but that's going to destroy supply in the, in the future. So we're, we're actually very worried about where supply is going to be in two, three years based on the amount of capital uh, expenditure destruction that's happened in the last two years in the oil industry. So we track all of that. We say, look, cheap oil is over, and we seem to be caught in this vice. The price of oil plummets because the economy is doing bad. All of a sudden, producers are not investing in new production. Many of them are going out of business, cutting dividends. And then next thing you know, you have a supply shortfall. Then the price shoots back up again. Uh, now the economy can't afford that, so the economy does bad. And we're in this uncomfortable uh, ceiling is getting lower and the floor is getting higher kind of a moment. Mm-hmm. That's the general trend we see in oil uh, whether or not it's a great investment, we can make strong cases for it being a, a great investment, all that. But what we're seeing is the economy needs oil to grow and can't afford the cost of the oil required to grow. That's the uncomfortable transition we're in right now. Yeah, I'm wondering to what extent might the political issues, geopolitical issues, I mean, it seems as though uh, the U.S. dollar has been strengthened or at least has been defined as a petrodollar post-1971. To what extent do you think some of these wars might be over who controls the this growing limited resource right now as we we see uh, I think I saw the other day something like a million more barrels being produced than being consumed would certainly not seem to be a problem with supply of oil at the moment you're saying that that's because of a weak economy perhaps well exactly demand is is not robust for oil at this point in time demand growth is relatively slow but also we're seeing a um, oil's always been a geopolitical weapon. Yeah. Russia is pumping more than it's ever pumped. It's working as hard as it can. Uh, so is so is uh, Saudi Arabia. Um, the United States, bless its heart, we're also pumping as much as we know how to do, even though it's fallen off a bit. Uh, everybody's pretty much pumping flat out, and you can say, well, they need the revenues, but really it's being used as a means of geopolitical disruption at this point in time. And, uh, you know, as we look around this particular stage, we say, yep, you know, if this continues for just a little while longer, we're watching a vast amount of depletion and declines in, in producing uh, fields from all over the world right now because they're just not investing. Or yeah. is collapsing at, you know, 10, 12% per year. Uh, Mexico is having a, a devil of a time uh, producing more. So that's all happening in the backdrop. Um, and, and, you know, all the normal infill drilling is not happening. So everybody's pumping about as flat out as they can for other reasons, and of course all the wars that we're seeing in the Middle East, listen, let's be completely honest, a major reason is because there's oil there, because there's energy. If there weren't, we wouldn't be there.
Yeah. All right. So, the, of course, these issues, the, the three E's that you talk about in your book, energy, uh, the economy, and environmental issues are all intertwined and, and related, of course. But, Adam, Adam, maybe you could talk a little bit about the economic imbalances that are occurring. Uh, I certainly can. I'll also jump back to energy in just a moment, too, because it's sure. an important point to follow up to. Sure, please. Yes. Um, you know, on the economic side, um, the litany of uh, economic imbalances is, is probably longer than we have time to list on this, this interview, but um, I think it can be summarized very shortly in, in the phrase um, Chris paraphrased earlier, which is too much debt. Mm-hmm. Um, we simply have too much uh, debt that's been pumped into the system, largely stealing demand uh, away from the future and prosperity from the future and pulling it into today. Uh, and saddling uh, future generations with the problem of trying to figure out how all that debt's going to be paid back. Um, a big factor that we talk about in both the Crash Course and Prosper is um, the exponential function and how that works. And um, with uh, our debts uh, increasing as exponentially as they are, and the uh, basically the huge transfer of wealth that's going on, even in relatively stable times like now, uh, from you know basically the 99% to the 1%, or mm-hmm. really the 0.1%, the uh, the burden of of dealing with those exponential uh, exponentially increasing debt loads um, is falling on a greater number of shoulders that have uh, a greater and greater inability to actually bear it. Mm-hmm. So you know, at, at the heart of the matter, uh, that's really what it is. And we look across our our pension systems, um, our uh, you know entitlement underfunding. Um, massive, massive bills that are going to be coming due, and, and you know, they are absolutely uh, underfunded, unfunded, or insolvent, depending upon how you look at it. You know, th- that's sort of the macro stage that we look at um, when we look at what's going on in the, in the economic se- uh, scene. Now, of course, there's a lot of other things going on there uh, that just compound the issue for the average person, and whether that's the rise of... Uh, uh, you know, uh, HFT-based algorithmic trading, mm-hmm. um, whether that's uh, increasingly, which we're going to de- detail in the new book, uh, the, the forms of financial repression that are um, being deliberately placed upon capital um, in many ways with, uh, with the general public being completely unaware of it. Sure. Um, people are basically just, you know, kind of dying this, you know, frog in the, in the heating pot uh, death of, uh, working harder and harder for for the same dollars, and having those dollars be able to uh, purchase less and less as time goes mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. Indeed, and and I wonder. I think Adam, you said you had uh, maybe you made the point with regard to energy. You said there was another no, point let, you wanted to pick up on. Underscore that. So yeah, Chris talked about the dynamics that were going on there, but but an important one to think of is is the the cost of energy, and, and not just the dollar cost of getting it but the energetic cost of, mm-hmm. of creating energy. And in the old days, you know, when you got a barrel of oil out of the ground, um, generally, if you, if you invested a barrel of oil's worth of energy to get oil out of the ground, you usually got about 100 barrels worth of oil back. Wow. So it was a 100 to 1 ratio. That was, you know, 100 years ago. I, yeah. um, nowadays, in, in the, the forms that Chris was talking about, the fracking wells, the tar sands, et cetera, you're getting down to the 5 to 1, 3 to 1 ratio. All right? So we've had a huge plummeting in the energetic return that we get from the energy we expend to get uh, energy out of the ground. And even though uh, oil prices are down dramatically and, and there is technically an oversupply of oil in the market right now, it's a very temporary one that was caused by the race largely in the U.S. of the shale oil producers with, with OPEC um, continuing to pump supply uh, in the background. And that oversupply we have is about a, it's a single digit percentage. It's probably a pretty low single digit percentage of oversupply. Mm-hmm. And yet it's created over a 50% price drop yeah. in the price of oil. So it, it's, it's not a, 
it's not accurate, accurately reflective of, of the glut we have. We, we, or, you, know, you hear the word glut, you think the world is awash in oil. It's, yeah. just, it's really yeah. just has a little bit more than it used to. And more importantly, when you look at global production over the past decade, it's pretty much been flat. Mm-hmm. So as Chris said earlier, we have been around the world, all the players have been pursuing production as hard as they can. And basically, we haven't been able to produce any additional oil annually globally over the past 10 years, while at the same time, the dollar cost that has been spent on oil production has fully doubled. Mm-hmm. And I don't know about you, but if, 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 you, you know, if any business were to tell you they had just doubled their investment, well, you would expect that they would get double the return to afford it. Right. Over the past 10 years, we've doubled our investment and gotten nothing back for it. Oh. That's that's uh, that's a good point. Well, you know, I, I have to think. You know, you talk about energy. I'm uh, more familiar, actually, with the mining sector, and I know how much more difficult it's also getting. You know, the low hanging fruit, so to speak. Uh, whether you're talking about gold or copper or or whatever the mineral is, uh, most of that's been gathered up more quickly. The question I have for you, Chris, or, or you, Adam, uh, is we have this exponential growth in debt. We have this exponential growth in consumption and population and all these things. And yet, you know, we see incomes, GDP, growing in the United States in a, at best in a linear fashion. Is this because of these sort of imbalances or let's say these additional costs of getting things out? Is that why is that one of the reasons, perhaps? I mean, I've, from Austrian theory, I've got some other ideas, but are, is that one of the reasons why income is growing in a linear fashion compared to the demand and, and consumption on a on a on an exponential manner? Chris, well, it, it is. It is. And so let's let's just in, just for energy, let's think about this. Let's imagine for the moment that that uh, we're getting some of this fifty to one oil out of the ground, right? Mm-hmm. So we invest one barrel, we get fifty back. Um, that's a ninety eight percent return of energy. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the energy business is busy using energy. I'll forget the, the dollar cost of it. They're busy using energy, but that other 98% of their uh, return on, on their efforts, that goes out to society. We use it however we want. Mm-hmm. People go to ball games. They take trips. They, they go dog grooming. They you know become lawyers. We live on that surplus energy. And so to Adam's point, when you get down to 5 to 1, something magic happens when you start getting below 10 to 1 returns in energy. All of a sudden, your headroom, where you go from 98% extra, all of a sudden plummets to just 80% extra mm. when you go to 5 to 1, right? Where, what happened to that, you know, almost 20%, that 18%? Where did mm-hmm. that go? Mm-hmm. Right? Well, where it went was, you can just detect it. It goes into people finding it increasingly hard to find meaningful work, that uh, employment just doesn't pick up as much. These are all things we predict when we say we have an economy and we're going to give it less surplus energy to be able to go out and be creative with. Um, so that's certainly an, ex- an, ex- an explanatory factor. Having too much debt's another explanatory factor. Japan has proved that experiment hands down. You know, you can print as much as you want, but as soon as you have too much debt clogging your system, you can forget about the growth. Um, and as well, you know, with all this financial repression and engineering has done some marvelous things. And one of them is it's allowed CFOs and companies to engage in financial shenanigans. You know, but it, they make sense, right? If I'm a if I can borrow at one percent and retire a stock that's yielding a 2% dividend, do it. But what happens is the companies have plowed over 100% of their cash flows from earnings back into stock buybacks, not much going into R&D. Um, so none of these things are, are, are really conducive to high rates of growth. And then the biggest one, of course, is demographics on a consumption-based economy. Listen, we have 10,000 boomers a day retiring, and they are just in a different part of the consumption curve than they used to be, and rightly so. 
Uh, Japan's facing the same issue. So we look at all, every one of those things, Jay, is just a, a headwind, but collectively it's really a gale force um, uh, resistance to this idea of rapid growth. The other E is environmental. Could you, Chris, could you just talk a little bit about that? Give us some of the ideas of the problems that we're, that we're facing. I mean, is soil nutrition, ocean chemistry is changing. Uh, the species are becoming more and more extinct. Uh, talk to us just a little bit about that. Maybe take a couple of minutes. Well, absolutely. This is uh, really important. We look at both the things we're taking from the environment, and you know some of that, right, with depleting ore grades and, and things like that, that we've really high-graded and scraped through some of the best everything from ore bodies to soils and, and easy access water, freshwater, stuff like that. And then also the stuff we're putting back into the environment, which would include the CO2 that acidifies the oceans. Uh, simple chemistry there, a more acidic ocean supports life in different ways and typically less life. That's a huge problem that we're, we're looking at. We've strip-mined our soils for nutrients, and if you stopped the uh, fossil fuel-based uh, fertilizer train from going onto soils, we would lose about half the productivity of our soils. So that's putting nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium back on as macronutrients, and we need micro back in there as well. So we're farming in an unsustainable way. We're drawing water from aquifers in an unsustainable way. We are um, putting and taking things from the environment in clearly unsustainable ways. And so when we put all that together, we say, again, none of these things are conducive to long-term aggressive rates of growth. We're at a new part of the story, and it's time for us as a, as a species, as a nation, to come up with a new narrative for how we're going to live into that reality. But our monetary masters only know one thing, rapid growth. They're going to keep pouring fuel on this fire until they get the result they, they want, and we think they're going to fail miserably because they don't understand the larger context of what they're doing. Yeah, well, they have been failing miserably, and yet they keep doing more of it. They double down all the time. Uh, with the remaining time, we only have uh, six or seven minutes left here, I suppose. But there's some very important concepts in your book, Prosper. One of those is resilience. And, and you know, what we want to do, as you mentioned, Chris, this book is more about, uh, you know, how to how to deal with the problems that we have. We've so far spent almost all our time here talking about the three E's and the problems that are coming our way and, and, and the devastation that is likely to occur. You know, we don't want to just give up. We want to try to find some answers, and that's what you're providing in your book, Prosper. I guess, Adam, you could you could talk as well about resilience. What do you mean in the book when you talk about resilience? Sure. Well, resilience is basically the ability to return to your pre-existing state uh, given some sort of insult. So it's really your ability to deal with adversity without being broken by it. Mm -hmm. And um, the conclusion that we come to from the crash course in our analysis of the three E's is that the one thing we can predict with absolute certainty is that change is coming. And in many ways, a lot of these changes are, are going to feel quite different than what we've been used to. And a lot of them are going to feel like uh, like losses or negative changes to people. We're just going to not be able to do as much of what we used to be able to do. And there probably will be some breakdowns in that process as well, probably some additional financial crises, you know, thinking back to a 2008 um, on the energetic side, uh, think about when oil spiked up to $150 a barrel. We could see that easily happening again in a couple of years, perhaps going even higher. Uh, on the environmental side of things, it could be anything from uh, continued droughts to uh, you know, more extreme climate change to uh, failures in the food system, uh, whatnot. And, and, of course, all this is going to um, impact different locations differently. So um, because we know that, that the likelihood of the changes is high and that their potential downsides is high, but we, we can't exactly predict 
the when and the, the how intense for the individual, we encourage people to, to cultivate resiliency, which basically means there's lots of steps that you can take today that uh, should these forces arrive uh, in full force, as, as you know, we, we predict, um, you're going to be much less impacted by them than people that, that didn't take these steps. And um, we, we have a framework uh, that we use to describe resilience. Um, we, we basically encourage people to develop capital, and there's really eight different types of capital that we think are important for building resilience. Money is one of them. Financial capital is, is definitely an important component, but it's only one of the eight. And the book really um, does a good job of walking people through the other seven. And, you know, and Chris is, in my opinion, uh, again, money can be a helpful tool here in building resilience, but money by itself certainly is, is insufficient. Uh, and the other seven forms of resilience are, are just as important as the monetary side. But the last thing I'll say about this before handing the ball over to Chris is these types of investments that we recommend are good investments of your time and energy to make, even if we are completely wrong, mm -hmm. even if the future looks exactly like the present for the rest of our lifetimes, encouraging people to get healthier, to uh, develop stronger relationships, uh, to build community, to work on their emotional health, to safeguard their personal finances. Nobody is going to look back in time and regret doing any of those things. In fact, uh, these are all life-enhancing catalysts, no matter what happens. And of course, if if some of the changes that we think are, are, are going to happen, in fact, do materialize, the benefit of these investments is going to have an outsized return because then it's really providing protection for you. There's so much in this book to cover. I mean, I would like to cover financial capital because this this show deals more in that realm. But I would just say to, to our listeners that Prosper is a book that you must read. You, you've got to get a copy of this because I think unless you completely dismiss what uh, what Chris and Adam are saying, this is very, very important. But even if, uh, you know, if you think that this doomsday scenario is is way out, uh, you know, unrealistic. As as Adam just pointed out, uh, the there's a lot of great ideas in there about how you uh, how you should uh, live your life uh, in any event. And so I think you've answered uh, probably Adam answered a lot of my questions here. You know why resilience matters uh, in, in briefly, but of course the book goes into a great deal of depth about that. So what should people really be doing now? I mean, it's as you point out in the book, it's very difficult. Change is difficult for people and. You know, I live in New York City, and I think about what happens if the bridges are blown up or if, if something happens and food isn't coming into the city, and what do I do then? I don't even own a boat. I can't get out of here. What What should people do? Uh, Chris, we were talking before we went on on the show here uh, that you live in a rural area of western Massachusetts where you can kind of do a lot of things. Well, well just give us an idea of what sort of things should people be looking to do. Uh, how, what should they start to do uh, to prepare for these difficulties? I mean, the idea of, of uh, generating and, and becoming more resilient, but it, practical things that people might start doing right now. Well, sure. So it, it really, you know, the, the genesis of writing this book is you ask the exact right question, which is what should I do? You know, you lay out the big three E's case, and people are aware of the trends, and they have that gnawing feeling, you know, uh, in the pit of their stomach, and so they ask that question, what should I do? And so what we do is we counsel people to um, really take a good, hard look at where they are strong and where they are weak with respect to these eight forms of capital, financial capital being one. And there we, we would very practically uh, advise that people begin with a solid assessment, knowing their balance sheet, uh, their income statement, their cash flow, like really doing the hard work of, of knowing exactly where their money is if they haven't done that, and then figuring out how to set aside a portion of that for these other resilience activities, and then making sure that the remaining balance, if it's going to stay in the financial markets, 
that it's managed safely and managed well with eyes wide open for these new risks that are out there, which can include everything from a bail-in to another MF Global to a, you name it, right? So who knows, like all new risks. Uh, and, and then once, once you've got a, a set of ideas around really where you're going to put your finance, that's one of our longest chapters. We've got a lot of ideas that span everything from gold investing to, to investing in, in uh, the markets, et cetera. Uh, is then to, to take stock of where you really uh, would want to begin to put your next efforts. And so to give one example, we think that social capital is going to be a very, very important determinant of success. So in your case, your social capital might be improved if you find somebody who has a boat and become his best friend, right? <laughs> um, that, that would be good. So we have some, some examples all through history where people – foresaw trouble coming, like they lived in Zimbabwe, they knew that currency was about to go belly up, they stockpiled food, they bought petrol, and a year later, all the stockpiles were gone in that, in that you know, they had seven more years of hardship. The people who did best had deep, trusting networks of people with whom they could um, uh, operate and still get what they needed, and mm-hmm. they, they did the best. So we recommend social capital is something that you actually think about, maybe not even for on mercenary terms so that I can get what I need in the future if X happens, but because it'll improve your life today. And yeah. because having deeper, richer connections with people are the things that people regularly look back on and say, that's actually what's important in my life. So we really advise people to, you know, get out of this bubble that we're in, get if you're on the couch, if you're isolated, if you're, you know, somehow locked away from humanity because that's the life many of us get it's easy to fall into in our current culture steps break out of that and and begin forming uh, these deeper connections that's uh, absolutely great advice i think uh, even in the best of times to uh, live a more joyful life i think it's being social and uh, and uh, you know helping each other out when they're in when people are in need for sure um, in, in any event, some of the other forms of capital, living, material, knowledge, emotional, as you mentioned, the social, as you mentioned, cultural, time, all of these, the book goes into great depth. And I, again, would just like to really strongly suggest to my listeners that you pick up a copy. Uh, Adam, where can you, where can people go to buy this book? Well, they can go pretty much everywhere, which is a great story. So the book is available today in print. It's available as an ebook. It's available uh, as an audio book. Uh, it's available at pretty much any major bookseller online or off. Um, and if you want to learn more about it, um, get a little bit of background of the book, why we created it, et cetera, uh, you can go to peakprosperity.com slash prosper, which also has links to all the different ways I just mentioned to buy the book. Excellent. And I think, uh, I believe both of you are involved also in putting together some uh, some seminars or some group gatherings from time to time. Is that right, Chris? It is. Uh, we usually do one a year, sometimes two. And uh, these are great times for people to get together. And, you know, Jay, well, what's fun about these is, uh, honestly, once we've assembled the people who, who are interested in this subject, we could literally um, get food poisoning for the rest of the weekend and people would still have a great time because it's, it's a meeting of the minds. And we have a wonderful time going deeper into all of these subjects and uh, really talking about where the world is, what we can do about it. And it's just uh, it's so wonderful to see people meet each other. They're doctors, lawyers, engineers, the housewives. I mean, they're just ordinary people, many of them very successful, uh, who have a chance to get together and, and talk freely. 
All right, and people can learn about these uh, these events uh, at peakprosperity.com, I suppose? peakprosperity.com slash event. Excellent. Very good. Well, thank you very much. I'm sorry we're out of time. So much more to talk about, but uh, at least people should have an idea of the importance of reading Prosper. So thank you very much. Well, folks, that's all the time we have for today's show. Uh, we will be back next week with more interesting, really fascinating guests. So uh, we hope to see you next week. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.